I support these bills because they strengthen Americans' access to the ballot box, and they better ensure that Americans' votes are counted fairly. These bills help treat the symptoms of the disease, but they do not fully address the disease itself. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a rock'em sock'em week in which the country continued to struggle with multiple aftershocks of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The week featured steady progress from the January 6th Select Committee, an apparent fatal blow to the prospect of voting rights reform, and a dramatic indictment of 11 domestic terrorists and members of the Oath Keepers for their role in the foiled insurrection. The Select Committee continued its energetic and focused work with a series of subpoenas, interviews behind the scenes, and most importantly, an overture to Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to share his knowledge of the riot and the state of mind of then-President Trump. McCarthy answered with a swift poke in the eye, calling the investigation illegitimate and the request an abuse of power. That snub framed the issue of whether the committee is prepared to issue subpoenas to a series of Republican lawmakers who may have inside information about the president's and White House's conduct in the weeks after Trump's loss. After delays of several months that incensed voting rights groups, President Biden came out strongly for targeted filibuster reform to pass voting legislation that looks necessary to arrest the progress of Republicans toward consolidation of minority rule. But Senators Cinema and Manchin dug a line in the sand with a maddening conjunction of support for one or more of the critical voting rights pieces of legislation but adamant opposition to the filibuster reform that always has been necessary to pass it. Finally, one week after the Attorney General's speech promising to follow the January 6th investigation wherever the facts and law lead, the Department of Justice quieted critics with a wide-ranging indictment on the rare and ultimate serious charge of seditious conspiracy. The charges were a giant step forward that recentered the investigation as one involving an assault on the U.S. government and the rule of law itself. To break down these fairly momentous events, I'm thrilled to welcome a fantastic panel of brilliant commentators, beginning with Jonathan Alter, an award-winning author, political analyst, documentary filmmaker, columnist, television producer, and radio host. We fact-checked all of those, and they're all legit. He is the author of three New York Times bestsellers and a former senior editor of Newsweek. 2020 marked Alder's 10th presidential election covered in print on television and the Internet. In 2021, he launched a newsletter, Old Goats, Ruminating with Friends, it's devoted to conversations with accomplished people of wisdom and experience. Welcome back to Talking Feds, John Alder. Oh, thanks for having me, Harry. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, 
Congresswoman Lofgren is, of course, a member of the January 6th Select Committee. She has served in the House since 1995, representing California's 19th District. She serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee, and is chairperson of the Committee on House Administration. She is also the chair of the California Democratic Congressional Delegation, and in fact, comes here directly from a meeting with them. It's an honor to welcome you, Congresswoman Lofgren. Thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. Happy to be here. And Professor Larry Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University professor and professor of constitutional law at Harvard. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences at age 38 and to the American Philosophical Society in 2010. He helped write the constitutions of numerous countries, and he was appointed in 2010 by President Obama and Attorney General Holder to serve as the first senior counselor for access to justice. He has written 115 books and articles, including his treatise, American Constitutional Law, cited more than any other legal text since 1950. And he's overall the fourth most cited legal scholar of all time. And I could go on, but I'll just list a few more among his countless honors as professor and advocate, 11 honorary degrees, service as a member on the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, and recognition as one of the foremost Supreme Court advocates of our time or any time. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Professor Tribe. It's a pleasure being with you. All right. Let's start, please, with the work of the 1-6 committee. I'd suggested that the committee had gone from second to fourth gear a few weeks ago. Now we may be approaching overdrive. If I can start with you, Congresswoman, we have a sense from the people who are cooperating, the huge team, the five different groups, that it's an immense operation. What's the basic war room setting look like behind the scenes? Well, we have put together, and really very quickly, a very fine investigative team. Quite a few of them are former U.S. attorneys, but there are others. As you know, we had our first hearing that we thought was important just to set the stage on the January 6th riot by having some Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police officers go through the day just to dispel the really disinformation campaign that this was just another ordinary day in Washington with tourists coming in armed with, you know, bear spray. Since that time, we have interviewed more than 300 witnesses. We've got more than 50,000 documents that have been in. We have interviews and depositions that go on multiple times every day. And I gather there are special rooms for that. I mean, is there a suite with whiteboards and index cards and people going back and forth and fast food. What's the feel back there? The staff is physically uh, located in the O'Neill building in Washington, which is one of the house office buildings, but it's not one of the three major. We don't really have adequate space in the House of Representatives. So we've got a number of committees that get stuck over there. They've got conference rooms. The staff has actually put together kind of an open Silicon Valley type workspace where people can see each other. And actually that helps, just as it does in Silicon Valley, in terms of synergy 
and cross connections because we do have teams looking at various elements. Uh, for example, we have a finance team that's looking at following the money, who raised it, who made it off of it, where was it spent, et cetera, et cetera. There are five separate teams of that nature, I gather. Just one more table setting question. You gave a one sentence summary of why you put up the law enforcement folks first. Is there a sketch from soup to nuts that's kind of like that with a set of goals and a short summary for what's going to be happening week in, week out? Or is it so fast moving and developing, you have to more be improvising and figuring it out each week? There are benchmarks and there's a plan, but to some extent we're building the plane while flying the plane because we don't have all the information yet. And we don't know when we will get other pieces of information. And as information comes in, it leads us to other inquiries. So if we knew the answer, we could stop. We don't. We're still investigating. We're still learning things. The members themselves are very active. You really have an all-star squad, I have to say. Members of Congress haven't always distinguished themselves in these sorts of hearings. They're difficult. It takes different skills from being in Congress. It's a very formidable group, I think. It's a good group. And we participate virtually. And frankly, because of COVID, there are some protocols. A lot of the witnesses are participating remotely as well, not all of them. So we are able, the members of Congress on the committee are able to post questions to the witnesses if there's something that doesn't get asked. But frankly, the investigative team does a very good job of eliciting information. So that's not usually necessary, although sometimes it is. Not only are we in depositions constantly, but we meet virtually oftentimes as well because we work over the holidays. There's no such thing as a weekend. So, And I guess this is going to probably get harder, not easier between now and the midterms. So let's talk about the big ticket developments of the week. Probably most prominent is the committee sent a letter to Kevin McCarthy seeking his cooperation. There's a pretty compelling case. It could be needed. He'd previously indicated he'd be glad to give information. He took a completely antagonistic posture, said the whole enterprise was illegitimate, etc. So I wanted to ask you, Professor Tribe, it raises the issue of the options for the committee, which legally seemed close to a blank slate, no? There's not a lot of precedent for a committee subpoenaing other members of Congress, perhaps in ethics inquiries. What's your sense of whether this will go to the courts and what the courts will do with it if McCarthy decides to fight? Well, I think there is no serious constitutional or other argument that McCarthy could make against the issuance of a subpoena. He could try the argument that uh, the committee is illegitimate. That's been shot down every time it's been presented in court. You could try the argument that he has some kind of privilege. He could argue that being a member of Congress, he can't be subpoenaed. There's no basis for that. And in fact, because the speech or debate clause provides a shield for members of Congress from inquiry from outside, there's a strong implication that the Constitution presupposes that consistent with their own rules, each House of Congress can certainly subpoena a member. If they can do so for an ethics inquiry, then it's 
all the more obvious that they can do so for an inquiry into the causes and possible remedies of an attack directly on the citadel of Congress itself. I mean, if you can't uh, find out whether members of Congress were complicit with the chief executive of the United States and with the Oath Keepers and others in breaching the Capitol and in invading it, really, for the first time since 1812, it seems to me that our government is really a standstill. So the problem is that although the arguments that he can make are not any good, the clock is ticking. Right. And the committee's license is likely to expire unless, and I hope this happens, unless the Democrats are returned to power in the House of Representatives in November. But if the committee vanishes, uh, then Nina's turned to pumpkins and Cinderella is out the window. Well, not just that, but the wicked stepmother then will be Kevin McCarthy, who will have all kinds of petty retribution. That's right. On the law, though, let me just add this one scenario. I don't know of any good argument on the merits either. Do you think there's at least a rich enough argument that it's a political question for the rules of Congress to eat up a lot of time legitimately by having that question go all the way up and back? And as you say, it's then past midnight. It's quite possible. Unless Congress begins to exercise its inherent power to jail people who will not respond to a subpoena, and that's more theoretical than real in right. today's world. There's no reason it couldn't happen, but it just doesn't look like a possibility. Unless that happens, it's a matter of going to court. And even in a simple case like Bannon, who had no arguments whatsoever, simple case like Bannon, his trial after the criminal referral to the Justice Department ate up about six weeks. His trial is now scheduled for the summer. It's not an easy process. That's why the tragedy is that the committee, which is doing such a phenomenal job with Bill Lofgren and others being absolute all-stars, it is stymied and frustrated as the other side runs out the clock. That's why the grand jury and its independent inquiries, which are much harder for people to stonewall, is so important. And that's why the development just yesterday of an important new indictment issued by the grand jury in Washington against the 11 Oath Keepers, that is really a bombshell. Yeah, and we will turn back to that. You're certainly right. That's what happened all the way during Trump's term in office. I do think the D.C. courts in particular have been more sensitive to the timing, trying to do their best, but that's presupposing, as in the Trump case, no real questions on the merits. Let me just add something. I agree with Mr. Tribe's analysis, but there's an additional constitutional provision that needs to be considered, which is each house has the ability to punish its own members for disorderly conduct. Yes. And the question is whether if a subpoena were issued, because we've just made requests to our colleagues so far, if subpoenas were issued and defied, whether that would be disorderly conduct. And I think an argument certainly could be made that refusing to comply with a lawfully issued subpoena of the House does constitute misconduct beyond that contempt issue. We know from the Adam Clayton Powell case that it, it might be something that, again, there's always this issue of 
Is there a legitimate way to go to the courts and therefore eat up time? Though Lofgren is surely right, the disorderly conduct can't just mean sort of yeah. jumping up and down and screaming. It, <laughs> right. it, it ought to include utterly defying a, a valid subpoena. Yeah. So, John, I wanted to ask you, McCarthy, he's the most prominent, but he's now the third to say, go take a hike to the committee and his colleagues. There are maybe half a dozen more. Do you take it as a foregone conclusion that none of them will break rank and you'll have a phalanx of complete opposition from all members of Congress who have information about the events of the day? I do. It's a little bit presumptuous to consider anything a foregone conclusion, but these members are all in thrall to a cult leader. And really, that's the only way that you can describe Donald Trump at this point. It's a cult that has a lot of followers, unfortunately. Not all 74 million Americans who voted for him in 2020 but millions nonetheless, and they do have a stranglehold on the Republican Party, this neo-fascist cult, not to put too fine a point on it. Madeleine Albright's book about fascism, the roots of fascism, makes it very clear that what we're seeing is fascism. Fascism is not a political ideology. It's a route to power. And they do qualify as fascists by any historical definition. But I just don't see any of them breaking rank, unfortunately. But there are good developments elsewhere this week. A lot of Democrats are down in the dumps for understandable reasons related to the voting rights bills. But I think the other thing that hasn't gotten enough attention, the other development is these documents out of the National Archives that were obtained through a Freedom of Information request. In more than half a dozen states, you have Republican, generally not office holders, but, you know, fake electors basically submitting fake documents saying that Donald Trump and Mike Pence won their states. The only name I recognized was Kelly Ward, who's the chair of the Republican Party in Arizona, and I guess saw herself as a Trump elector. And she affixed the uh, seal of the state of Arizona to this fraudulent document that was submitted. So I, I guess I'm wondering whether the group thinks that this is a clear case of fraud. I can jump in, at least on behalf of prosecutors, to say, you know, I'm part of a sort of usual suspects, former prosecutors who see this as a very serious possibility. I do think that's a big development. I'm going to name one more that's been kind of under the radar. The suit against Cawthorn to disqualify him under the 14th Amendment is very interesting because of the delay point we're making. It has to play out by May because North Carolina is going to have to make final determinations about who is on the ballot and likewise with other suits that are coming. So to the extent they're successful, they're going to shake loose information in fairly short order. I just want to jump onto that hot seat with respect to the fraud. This is really serious. The fact is that last night, Michigan's attorney general I think, to her credit, referred the fake elector documents of the people who pretended to be electors from the state of Michigan for criminal prosecution in not just the Michigan courts, but she made a criminal referral to the United States attorney, which is likely quite soon to land on Merrick Garland's desk. Right. This was a coordinated plot in 
a number of states, somewhere between four and seven, there were simultaneous submissions of virtually identical fake documents by people claiming to be Trump electors. And there are visual tapes of fake electors showing up, for example, at the Michigan Capitol, being turned away by the police when they said, we want to be here because it's December 14th. That's the date the Electoral College meets. We are members of the college. And the police officer at the Statehouse gate says, no, I'm sorry, the electors are meeting right now in the Statehouse. So we have this plot. It involves several states, so it couldn't have come from anywhere but a central location. And it is a clear plan, bloodlessly, to overturn the election. If this Plan A, as I've called it in some of the things I've published, had succeeded, they wouldn't have had to storm the Capitol. I mean, there's a very rich, if we're taking law school exams, kind of intent issue here. But you've tweeted out, if a forgery in connection with federal elections, a straightforward trip to the federal penitentiary. Harry, you're talking about more than 50 prominent Republicans from these states who could be facing jail time on fraud. This could be right. a and huge a story. And, and also, as Larry Tribe indicated, you're talking about a coordinated effort. So it does raise the question of coordinated by whom. And I think we're going to find that that leads into the White House and the Green Bay sweep. That question, coordinated by whom, is huge in all of these. Let me stay with the committee for just one or two more questions. We mentioned the former vice president, Mike Pence. We've got reports now that he seems to break into cold sweats pretty easily, but he's breaking into a new one and worried that his staff is seeming too cozy with the committee staff. My question is this. How important is it ultimately to the committee's mission that the vice president give sworn public testimony? Well, I really can't answer that <laughs> at this point. Obviously, we're looking at everything and there are a lot of things we would like to learn from the former vice president. I think it's probably more useful not to comment on press reports about his views. I have no idea what his views are. I did serve with Pence when he was in the House of Representatives. We got along and we didn't agree on a lot of things, but we got along all right. I was one of the tellers during the electoral count and interacted with the vice president at that time. And he did the right thing, but it was obviously not a comfortable position for him. And one of the memories I have most clearly on that was after the riot, we came back, we were all of us committed to finishing the job right there in the chamber. And the one thing that he focused on was he wanted to make sure that the chaplain was available. He wanted the chaplain to give a prayer. And that was really important to him. And he is a guy who's very serious about his religious faith. So I think that he leaned on his faith as well as the other advice he got to do the job that he was assigned to do. And I hope that he will use that same religious faith to come forward and talk to the committee and tell us what we need to know. Well, I must say, I think his religious faith tells him pretty much what he wants to hear in situations like this. One thing that I would offer as a kind of piece of unsolicited advice to your committee is that there are recordings, visual tape recordings, video of the vice president in circumstances where if he's unwilling to come and speak under oath, 
his silence will speak volumes. For example, unlike the past five or six vice presidents who presided over that special quadrennial joint session when the electoral votes are counted and who went through a formulaic statement of which votes should be counted, Mike Pence this time, you'll find it in contrast with all of the earlier occasions, added a very special and unexplained statement. He said, however, any certificates that purport to represent electors from the several states that are not marked with official stamps from a recognized official of the state shall not be counted. It's clear that he was aware of what we talked about a few minutes ago, this nationwide conspiracy to get a number of states to send in phony electors. Now, how was he aware of that? He must have had some involvement, not necessarily criminal involvement. But as John Alter said, this thing had to be organized from the top, whether the Willard Hotel or the Oval Office. And if the vice president was aware, so it turns out was the spokesperson for the White House. He, in an interview with Hannity, referred to these allegedly authentic electors. It's ironic that the party that has survived on claims of voter fraud is the one who, uh, that not only in terms of individual voters who claim to be who they're not, now at the highest level of electors, appear to be involved in the most grave voter fraud of all, defrauding the United States of the results of a fair and, and comprehensively audited election. John, any thoughts on the necessity or not? So, first of all, I don't think it's likely at all that he will appear before the committee because it's one thing for him to have done the right thing and done his job on January 6th. In his own mind, he can survive that when he runs for president, which he wants to do someday. And there are not enough people who want to hang Mike Pence. But what he can't survive politically is testifying. So I'd be astonished if he ended up testifying. But I don't think it matters all that much. If you look back at the Watergate hearings in the summer of 1973, they didn't have the highest level people testifying. It was one level down. Yeah, two or three levels down. The bigger question for me is whether Mark Short, his chief of staff, will testify. He knows everything. And he seemed more cooperative at first. And then More recently, he's been sounding dodgier and making it sound as if he thinks that the committee's overreaching and he's backpedaling the way other potential witnesses have. But there are clearly others, in addition to Mark Short, in the former vice president's office, who will make excellent witnesses because it's a very dramatic story of him having to, as we saw in tape, escorted off the floor to a secure location, and then for reasons that Mark Short describes as optics, deciding not to leave the Capitol. But that in itself is you know, really dramatic because they can get testimony from people who will say what would have happened if he had left the Capitol. He might have been prevented from returning to the Capitol. The name that keeps coming up much more recently is Trump. And John, you just referred to Watergate, and that puts me in mind of the 18 and a half minute tape from Rosemary Woods. We have a parallel here of 183 minutes 
when Trump was doing nothing except maybe reveling and being jubilant while watching things on cable. My question is, are they seriously contemplating building some kind of criminal case and making a referral? And if so, is there a risk that it basically swamps everything, puts the whole effort into a real political hornet's nest context and basically subsumes the rest of their work telling the nation what happened? This whole idea of criminal referral, I think, has been overblown. When we refer to the DOJ, those who defied our subpoenas, that's a different situation. We're basically asking the department to evaluate this for criminal prosecution. But for other crimes, it carries no weight. I mean, we have an opinion. We're a legislative body. We have no say, and we shouldn't have a say in who the Department of Justice prosecutes and for what. We will make all the information that we find available to the public and the Department of Justice is part of that public. And if there's something they think needs action, they will, I'm sure, do it. But I think a referral doesn't do anything. I'll also add, I think for the department on the contempt, it mattered a lot that the victim of the crime was the Congress. And I think you're right. Maybe the AG has even said so. Your colleagues And maybe there's a little practical increase in pressure, but basically the information is the information is, I think, the attitude that would prevail on the fifth floor of the department. Hi, this is Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. I want you to take a second and ask yourself this question. What did you do when democracy was at stake? If you don't have an instant answer, here's an easy place to start. Subscribe to my free newsletter at democracydocket.com. It breaks down the latest in voting rights, redistricting, and democracy. Remember, you can't fight voter suppression if you don't know it's happening. Subscribe now. All right, let's move now to the other big development of the week. Wait behind a filibuster reform in order to pass the voting rights legislation that I think all three of you have said is incredibly vital, maybe the most important thing in the nation now. Biden's speech in Georgia was boycotted by some voting rights groups. Why do you think that he had such sort of tepid support among the natural constituency for exactly what he's doing? Well, I think many people were disappointed that he hadn't given this greater priority earlier, that his work on infrastructure and Build Back Better had taken center stage, making it possible for Manchin and Cinema to basically not only grab the spotlight, but kill the bill. And that really is tragic, because if, as the president has said various times, his highest priority ultimately to save the soul of the nation, And there's nothing closer to the soul of the nation than the right to vote. And if it's his purpose to prevent democracy from being destroyed, it's really hard for these groups to see why this wasn't front and center earlier. But right now, it's the cynicism of Manchin and Cinema that's killing the carve-out for voting rights from the filibuster. So is that right what Professor Tribe's diagnosis is after all the flirting, you could say, Manchin and Cinema are going to break the Democrats' hearts here. Cinema has now come 
down and made clear she won't support changing the filibuster. Is it basically dead in the water? Well, we had a California delegation meeting just before I came on, and our discussion was that we never give up until everything is done. So there's going to be a debate. I think hashtag we want voting rights is now number two of all tweets in the world. Obviously, H.R. 1 was bigger than what's being considered, but the Freedom to Vote Act, which is Manchin's bill, right. is actually an important bill. And although it's not everything we wanted, it is sufficient to protect the country and we support it. And so we're just not going to give up until everything is done. I don't don't see what choice we have. Let me ask, what does it look like when everything is done? John, maybe you have a sense. Do we expect Schumer to still bring filibuster reform up for a vote no matter what, even after cinema's line in the sand? What does the end game look like here? I don't think it's entirely clear. Before speculating, I just wanted to return to something that Larry Tribe said about people blaming Joe Biden and assuming that if he had waved a magic wand or was the Green Lantern, which is the increasingly uh, popular metaphor for unreasonable expectations of the president, that he would have been able to have a different outcome. Manchin and Cinema, their positions have been quite clear pretty much all along. And if Biden had been pushing hard on this last fall, the same thing would have happened. It would have been stymied by the filibuster. So I really think people should give the president a break on this. And he is making his position very clear. He's no longer a senator and has no ability, despite having talked to both Manchin and Cinema about it for a long time, to bend them on eliminating the filibuster. But what gets me is that there is another option called the talking filibuster, which doesn't do anything to actually carve out a place for voting rights or carve out any kind of other legislation, which both of those senators are adamantly opposed to. But a talking filibuster simply says, go back to Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, Jimmy Stewart, restore the old filibuster. And my reading of cinema's speech was that she did not close the door on that. What I favor at this point is for them to allow on a simple vote, which they've actually done before. Robert Byrd did this a couple of times on campaign finance reform. It didn't work. The filibuster still held, but they you know, brought in the cots and went all night. And I think that would be very, very good for the country to get a lesson on where the Republican Party really stands on voting rights. You have 16 Republican members of the Senate who voted as part of a 98 to nothing vote about 15 years ago to extend the Voting Rights Act. Why, as Joe Manchin asks, why have they now changed their minds, moving backwards? They no longer support the Voting Rights Act? The country doesn't know that yet. So there's an education process here that even an unsuccessful effort to bring this to the floor can provide. And so if they're going to filibuster, they have to be there all night. And by the way, while they're at it, and you don't know what cinema's position on this would be, 
they could adopt Norm Ornstein's idea, which is instead of requiring 60 votes to block a bill, you need 41 on the floor to move it forward. So I don't think anybody should give up. And I think that now the conversation should move to the talking filibuster. And let's see what happens. If it ties up the Senate for three weeks, that would be a good thing. It would further crystallize the issue. In addition to that, when the House acted on the Freedom to Vote colon John Air Lewis Act, we basically hijacked our NASA lease extension bill and sent it over to the Senate. They're now going to be able to take that up and offer amendments that will be considered on a majority vote basis. So there's going to be substantial discussion, amendments, votes, and the like. It doesn't address the passage filibuster issue, but you're right. I think the door has been left open not to repeal the filibuster. They're clear that they do not want to do that, but to revert to prior iterations of the filibuster when debate was more robust. So let's hope that that happens because this is very important, very important stuff. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington would replace uh, It's a Wonderful Life as uh, Jimmy Stewart's big movie. And it's hard for the Senate to have a dramatic moment. And yet in a funny way, it would. I mean, I almost hate to talk the politics of this. Let me stick with one more political question, however. It is clear that they were never going to support this. Why did the two of them play footsie for so long? Why was there this extended courtship and then really dramatic jilting instead of having it completely off the table months ago? And I'm talking about Mansion and Cinema now. Actually, the press just missed that story. They've been very clear for many months, both of them, that they didn't want to eliminate the filibuster. And in the meantime, they were both pretty clear about the carve-out. Now, Manchin was more accessible than cinema to the press, so he was a, a little bit clearer. I think where the confusion came is that Manchin actually wrote the bill. Right. So it's not just like he's a co-sponsor. It's his bill now. And he's tried at least a couple of times to get it through the Senate because he always likes to give Republicans a chance before. And they've already filibustered twice. You don't even have to show up at work to filibuster. That's what's so crazy about the system right now. It got confusing because I think some Democrats engaged in a kind of wishful thinking, and I have to say that I was among them, in thinking that, well, maybe since it's Manchin's bill, he'll finally be convinced that he has to change his mind on this. Because he was on the Sunday shows making the point that I just made a few minutes ago, that it's just so hypocritical for these members who were part of a 98 to nothing vote to extend the Voting Rights Act. And that's really all that the John Lewis Act does. That he has rewritten and it's a good bill. And so he said to his Republican colleagues, look, you were for it before and even Strom Thurmond was for this. So why can't you be for it now? So there was a hope that given that, that he would bend a little bit. But cinema was always going to be a tougher nut to crack. Presidential candidate cinema. Uh, I'll close out question here. If we're in a post John Lewis or voting rights legislation world, and I think Biden inverted to this, it falls to the Dems to try to execute a state-by-state strategy, seed 
individual states with office holders who kind of hold the levers at the ground level. This is one thing that it seems to me that the Republicans have been very focused on. No substantive platform or anything like that, but they have been really pretty good, I think, about having office holders at at these levels and maybe have a big jump on the Dems. Is that your sense as well? Well, let me just say it is disappointing that the Voting Rights Act that used to be bipartisan has now become so opposed by Republicans. I remember Jim Sensenbrenner and I served together for a long time. He's a very conservative man, but he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee when we last renewed the Voting Rights Act. He did a very detailed job. We had thousands of pages of evidence that was compiled under his leadership, and the court just disgracefully disregarded the evidence that had been compiled by a Republican chairman. We had, as you say, almost a unanimous vote. So now I really think there's ample evidence that the Republican Party writ large sees their way to power by disadvantaging and preventing people from voting. I mean, they lost the popular vote twice the last two elections. And suppressing the vote or subverting the vote is a way to keep power. The way that states have tried to prevent people from voting is troubling. But the gerrymandering, and you don't have preclearance anymore, you don't have the remedies that were available in the Voting Rights Act. And so you can end up elevating minority power. So no matter how many voters vote otherwise, you never can regain the power. And that's what we're seeing, for example, in Texas, where Democrats lost the statewide vote in the House by a couple of points and yet only got 37 percent of the seats. And when you do that in state legislatures, without the protection of the law, minority power is entrenched and cannot be regained. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, there's a dual hypocrisy here. It's not simply that they were for voting rights legislation now against it. And by the way, the record that Sensenbrenner and others assembled is exactly what the Supreme Court ignored in the Shelby County case. But they're doing it in the name of this chimerical and really cynical notion that there's fraud out there. And that's the reason many Republicans are saying that the real problem and what they want to oppose. Which is baloney sandwich, because the Republican colleagues who are saying it's fraud, 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 were elected by the same ballots that they're now saying were fraudulent for president, but they were absolutely fine to elect them. It's obviously complete BS. I think the Democrats have a lot to answer for in how they have just done a horrible job at the local level. In some cases, they aren't even slating any candidates to run for county election commissioner and other very important local offices. They've just let that part of the party completely atrophy. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon is urging thousands of people who are answering his call to become poll workers. The same thing's not going on on the Democratic side. So there are remedies for this. There's a very interesting organization called Run for Something that encourages people to run for these local offices. But it's not sexy. You know, it's much easier 
to just go to a fundraiser for some candidate running for the senator governor that is sexy and interesting for big Democratic donors. They have to get with the program and start to fund these local unsexy races or its curtains for democracy. This is job one for the Democratic donor class in this country. Wow. Look, this is a nonpartisan show, but let me just say that I regard the Republicans over the last few years as being fairly substanceless and not really focused on doing anything. But there have been two big exceptions where they've been formidable. One has been in judicial selection, and now this is the other. They really do seem ahead of the game. And as you suggest, this may be the game, only game in town as far as voting rights go. All right, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we have a really interesting topic for you. The United States' use of drones to carry out targeted assassinations of suspected terrorists. And to explain it to us, and this is one of those weeks when I can't believe how good I have it, we welcome Stuart Copeland, the founder, that's right, and drummer for the great post-punk trio, The Police. He's been called one of the most popular drummers to ever get behind a drum set, ranked the 10th best drummer of all time by Rolling Stone. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003, the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame in 2005, and the Classic Drummer Hall of Fame in 2013. I give you Stuart Copeland, on the use of drones for targeted assassinations. Is the United States' use of drones to carry out targeted assassinations of suspected terrorists lawful? For the last several years, the United States has conducted targeted assassinations of terrorists using armed drones. Administrations of both parties have embraced this tactic over the last 10 years. Importantly, U.S. use of drones has expanded beyond the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are generally governed by congressional authorizations to use military force. So, for example, locations such as Somalia and Libya and groups other than the Taliban and al-Qaeda would not be covered by congressional grants of authority. A prominent example is the drone strike that killed Iranian commander Qadem Soleimani in 2020. The United States was not at war with Iran and had no specific intelligence that Soleimani was about to carry out an attack against Americans. So how did we justify the killing? Under the Charter of the United Nations, which the U.S. has ratified, there is a sharp legal distinction between the use of force in the course of formal armed hostilities and other situations. Under international human rights law, a state killing is legal only if it is required to protect life, making lethal force proportionate, against imminent threat to life, and there is no other means such as capture or non-lethal incapacitation of preventing that threat to life, brackets, making lethal force necessary, close brackets. That doesn't sound as if it applies to the Soleimani case or scores of others in which the targets are not combatants in a war zone. Recent administrations, however, have advanced creative arguments that killings, including Soleimani's, qualify as self-defense. These arguments have never been endorsed by a court, nor have they been expressly rejected. First, the U.S. interprets self-defense 
to include anticipatory actions against imminent threats of armed attack that have not yet materialized. Under this view, if a terrorist is planning an attack and against the United States, a peremptory use of armed force to prevent the attack qualifies as self-defense. Second, if a terrorist who is otherwise in hiding and beyond detection surfaces briefly, the U.S. argues that a drone attack against him satisfies the imminence requirement because it is our last clear chance to take him out before the attack, even if the attack might not occur for years. Other requirements, such as minimizing collateral damage against non-lawful targets and avoiding weapons that inflict unnecessary suffering, are more straightforward. Even when all the legal requirements have been met, the UN Charter sets additional procedural requirements, such as notification of the UN Security Council of the use of self-defense. The United States, however, has not complied with this requirement, nor offered any explanation for its refusal. For Talking Feds, I'm Stuart Copeland. Thank you very much to Stuart Copeland. Just a few more facts about him because the police is really only the beginning of his phenomenal, multi-talented career, which includes groundbreaking work as a film composer and opera writer. He's a recipient of the Hollywood Film Festival's first Outstanding Music in Film Award. He is a opera composer. He wrote the Telltale Heart music and libretto, a opera about Edgar Allan Poe. On September of last year, the opera Electric Saint about the life of Nikola Tesla with libretto by Jonathan Moore premiered at the National Theater of Weimar. His hypnotic album Divine Tides is nominated for a Grammy for Best New Age Album, and he has four more shows in his Police Deranged for Orchestra Tour in March. He is an amazing artist who has justly been called infuriatingly talented. Thank you very much, Stuart Copeland. Oh, and one more quick fact. His father was a founding member of the OSS and the CIA, as a result of which he grew up in Cairo and Beirut. All right, we have a few minutes left to discuss the bombshell indictment on charges of seditious conspiracy against Stuart Rhodes and other members of the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers. I just wanted to ask you, Congresswoman, whether the work of the committee, this is obviously a big part of the story of 1-6, is going to somehow be taking account or developing its overall narrative based on this fairly big development on the criminal justice front? I'll just say we're doing our own investigation. The Department of Justice is not sharing their information with us, nor should they. So we're doing our own investigation. I will say, without getting into the detail, there is substantial overlap in some cases. Earlier in the episode, Professor, you portrayed the indictment on seditious conspiracy as something of a game changer. And you've been among the people who've been critical of the attorney general's overall pace and results here. How buoyed are you by it? And why do you think it's so important? Well, I'm quite buoyed. People (laughs) will have read it. Uh, It's vital for people to 
call this thing what it is. It's not just trespass. It's not just a, a bunch of rowdy people. It's certainly not a spontaneous riot. There is a well-orchestrated, detailed plan from before the election until after January 6th, as this latest indictment says, to oppose the lawful transfer of presidential power by force. And that basically amounts to overthrowing the government. This is really treason's sibling. It is the most serious crime against the country that can be committed, and it's about time the Justice Department take it as seriously as it finally is, and it's got to go all the way to the top. From the department's point of view, it's interesting. There is no guideline for seditious conspiracy. You analogize it to the closest one under the guidelines, and that is indeed treason. Top of the charge, 43 offense level. So, John, what about that? Is it important now just for the country that the DOJ is now conceptualizing this as a crime, not against property, not against public order, but against the laws of the U.S.? Absolutely. This is a really big development And this guy, Rhodes, who's a traitor and clearly was engaging in treasonous activity, he must be sent away for a long time. That's an important message to send. But if he is engaged in seditious behavior, the question is, who else was he coordinating with anybody? And those leads could turn this whole story into one that really is about sedition. And then there are opportunities for keeping Trump from running again, even if he's not sent to jail. So I know you've discussed Section 3 of of the 14th Amendment in the past, but it really, really needs to get more attention. And that's how they prevented Confederate sympathizers from running for federal office after the Civil War. And it clearly should be applied to Donald Trump. He he fits that to a T. I urge people to go look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. He fits it to a T. And all of us must do all that we can to prevent him from running for office again. It's not enough to just hope that he's defeated. It's lights out for democracy if he returns to the White House. And even some people who have been working for him, like Alyssa Farrar, who is his communications director, have said that all all freedom would go. They're going to do it very, very differently if they get power back in 2025. So all roads on this story must lead to preventing this man from coming back to power. All right. We just have a minute or two for our Talking Five feature where a listener gives us a question and we often answer it in five words or fewer. Today's question from Susie Taylor is... Maya Angelou was the first quarter launched in the American Women's Series. Who should be next? Constance Baker Motley. How about Sojourner Truth? Eleanor Roosevelt. All right. I, too, choose Eleanor Roosevelt. That's five. But to not be too much of a copycat, I will add as a second choice a offbeat one, Julia Child. And to understand why... You might want to check out the new movie by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Julia Cohen and West are the award-winning filmmakers of RBG, among other works. All right, that is all the time we have for today's episode, which really I wish could go on for several more hours. Thank you very much to Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, Professor Larry Tribe, and Jonathan Alter. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. 
If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these are not outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we have those there, but really original one-on-one discussions with national experts. So you can go take a look and see what we've got there and then decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers, and production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the infuriatingly talented Stuart Copeland for explaining the law of the use of drones to carry out targeted assassinations of terrorists. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.